Welcome to the Recovery Stories Podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. This is the Recovery Stories Podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Custer. I'm so glad that you've tuned in with us today and hope you stick around to the end of this episode to find encouragement and hope through this story. We've got a special guest, and I'm so excited she's here from Mount Juliet, Tennessee, Erin M. Well, welcome, and thank you so much for giving us your time today and um, being brave and vulnerable to um, you know, go online and, and um, you know, share about your experience, your struggles, your journey. Um, I know that it's going to help people out there. Um, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. And um, I've been really open with my story since I've gotten home from the ranch because that was kind of a goal when I left was to be open so that if anyone else um, needed to reach out, and I've had that happen actually um, probably about 10 times um, from totally people that, you know, you've been Facebook friends with, but you don't really talk to. And just because I've put something out there on Facebook and they've seen it, they've felt comfortable to then reach out to me privately and say, Hey, can you tell me more about what you went through, how the ranch was, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, well, real quick, before you got, get started, I just wanted to mention if anybody who's watching um, live or on replay is needing help, if you're experiencing emergency, call 911. Um, if uh, you are experiencing self-harm or suicidal thoughts, please um, call the National Suicide Prevention Line. We've provided that number in the comment section. And also, if you need any type of treatment help, uh, we are also willing and happy to help you. That number is also in the comment section. So um, with that, uh, the floor is yours, and I'm excited to hear hear your story. Okay. Um, so I think this may be the first time I'm telling my whole story to an audience, um, so you'll have to bear with me. I did uh, make some notes, kind of just a rough outline. Um, so hopefully I don't jump around too much and I'm sure I'll forget something and I'll be, you know, kicking myself when I realize it, but, um, you know, it's we'll quite all right. Best. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll start with, um, kind of just where I grew up, uh, my family life. So I am the youngest of three children. I have an older sister and an older brother. Um, two-parent household. Our grandmother also lived with us, and that will, you know, kind of play a key role um, in my story. So I grew up, was raised, uh, and grew up in New Jersey, and then I'll, you know, kind of go through how I wound up in Tennessee, but was in New Jersey, you know, my whole 18 years of my life until I went to college. 
Um, so I was kind of the child who got the good grades, did all the extracurricular activities, um, never got in trouble outwardly. So, um, in school always did really well. Um, not that I never got in trouble at home. Um, but there were a lot of things I did kind of hidden, especially in my high school years that my parents didn't know about, still don't. Um, they know some, but um, I was kind of, you know, yeah. I forget the, there's the classifications of the different children. And I was kind of that, the perfect child, um, even though I'm the youngest. So, which is unusual because when I took the class at the alumni reunion, I remember thinking, um, that's a typical first child thing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like my sister and I were flipped. Um, my brother is about 16 months older and he has disabilities and mental health issues. And um, looking back, um, I wish my parents had kind of handled it slightly differently in terms of like how they related to him and how my sister and I as siblings should relate to him. Um, so I think that played into my childhood or into my identity as that perfect child, because I didn't want to be another burden to them because it was almost like caring for him was caring for more than one person or more than one child. So I didn't want to really add to that. Um, so it was just kind of understood that I would do well in school. I don't remember any sort of like punishment if I didn't or like reward system. It could be my memory, but like, I just kind of did it. Um, so growing up, I had what I guess you would consider a normal childhood. And I think that's an interesting concept, the normal childhood, because when I went to the ranch, I basically learned, no, you didn't really have a normal childhood. It was normal in the sense of I had two parents in the home. Um, we lived in a house. We were in suburban New Jersey. We had good schools. Both my parents worked. We had enough food to eat. We were able to go on vacations. So that was what I thought was normal. Mm. But on the inside, and this is where I later learned kind of these little traumas came from was the fact that my, we were just terrified of my dad growing up. That's kind of the best way to summarize it. Mm -hmm. um, he was never physically abusive. It was really all just lots of yelling, throwing things. Um, I mean, there was times where he would be so mad that he and the fight might be taking place in like the kitchen. And so the way that my house was set up, that's like, we were in like a split level. So like downstairs in my high school years, my brother and I were downstairs and then upstairs was my parents' bedroom, my sisters and my grandma. But that's also like all the living space, the kitchen, all that stuff. So it was kind of like, you were so scared to like cross paths. And if, you know, a fight broke out, or whatever between him and my mom or just him yelling about whatever during dinner time, you just didn't get dinner. Like you were just so scared. And so we would go to my grandma's room um, and she was diabetic, but she would sneak like cookies 
in her room. So like that would be what we would eat sometimes. Um, wow. So my grandma, you know, her room was my safe place, my safe place. Um, so she was kind of the most important relationship um, for an adult, let's just say. Um, and she, you know, wasn't working or anything. So she was really home all the time. Um, I think by the time I was in high school, she wasn't even driving anymore. Um, so she was just a safe person that was always there. And I'm really, you know, blessed and thankful that I, that I had that. Um, so my home life, you know, on the outside looked really well. Um, but on the inside, we were basically living in fear. My sister and I always refer to it as walking on eggshells. Mm. Um, you just never knew what was going to make him mad. Um, what was going to set him off, um, because it wasn't consistent. It, you just never knew. So that's kind of, um, in a nutshell. Um, so in high school is kind of where a lot of things started. Um, and again, I look at the time thinking some of them were normal and now looking back and realizing that they weren't. Um, or that maybe they shouldn't be, even if people think they're normal, that maybe they shouldn't be. So around 15, I started, you know, socially drinking, um, becoming, uh, promiscuous. I never did drugs somewhat surprisingly. <laughs> I had, um, plenty of friends that did, but that was something, I don't know why I drew this line of like, oh, drinking's okay, but drugs aren't. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, kind of this high school mentality of, you know, on the weekends you go to a friend's house and you get drunk and that was kind of, you know, what we did, um, for fun. So that started around 15. Um, I think the promiscuity had something to do with, I was overweight growing up, um, and teased. So... I feel like maybe I was just doing what I could because I didn't know who would want me or because that's what was expected or for the attention. Um, but, um, you know, I obviously looking back, wasn't a healthy way to kind of approach any of that. Um, you were and, trying to find, you were trying to find connection through any form of coping that you could find. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah. Um, then at about 16 is when the self-harm started. And I do want to kind of, I guess, give a trigger warning of some sort that um, some of my self-harm just, you know, may be somewhat graphic. So if anyone's watching and um, just so you know. So... I don't know where I even got the idea. Like, you know, I'm 37. So when I was 16, that was what, over 20 years ago. So I don't, I don't know that it was talked about or if I, like, I don't remember seeing it. So I really don't know where I got this idea, but, um, it basically, and I wasn't, I feel like your typical self-harmer because I had this image of self-harm where like, you know, this like depressed, dark person in their room with like a razor blade. Mm -hmm. And that was not me. I was 
angry. Like in high school, I was just this angry person and I couldn't wait to get out of New Jersey and I couldn't wait to go to college. And I, um, I just had this really big anger problem. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I basically took after my dad. um, And I started cutting but with keys. And I don't know if it's because that's just what was accessible. But it wasn't so much this like, it was more like slashing at myself just to get rid of the anger. That's how I would describe it to people. Mm. Like, because it was better for me to feel the physical pain um, than to feel the anger. So it was kind of, I hate to say like, it was my version of punching a pillow when you're angry, but that's basically what it was. Um, But I would also like bite myself. I would punch myself and I would pull my hair out. Um, so I think it was 16 or 17 and, um, a few friends knew, and we kind of came up with this weird plan to get help without me having to ask for help directly, because of course I'm scared to tell my parents or ask them. So, um, eventually they got a call from like the guidance, guidance counselor, and, and we kind of did that on purpose, knowing they would have to tell my parents if it was something this serious. So I started seeing a therapist and I really did not like it because she, I felt like all she wanted to do was talk about my family and talk about my parents. And it wasn't labeled in this way of like trauma. It was just, I remember thinking, I need practical ways so I can stop. And I wasn't getting that. And, but I went, you know, week after week after week, my mom would drop me off. She'd pick me up, never ask any questions. It was just, um, you know, so I remember just thinking it was kind of a waste of time. Um, also I'm trying to think of anything else in high school. So that was basically high school. So, um, the drinking promiscuity, self-harm, but still kind of keeping up the good grades. Um, going to college was pretty much just what everyone, most people did in my town. Um, you know, and I really thought I was going to go to college and go down this career path of whatever. At the time it was a lawyer. So I went to a small college in Virginia called Mary Washington. Um, I absolutely loved it. It, um, I picked it partly because it was far from New Jersey. (laughs) Um, I had gotten accepted into a few colleges in New England, but I really fell in love with Virginia and the South. So I went to Mary Washington. Um, My freshman year was uh, almost one big trauma after the other. Um, I dated someone and it was a very unhealthy relationship Um, He wasn't a student. He was like from the town that the school was in. He was about a year younger. So he's, you know, 17, I'm 18. We get engaged after, you know, I don't know, a month or two of knowing each other. Um, So he um, lived in the town, like I said, and he lived with his grandparents and I'm at his house one time. This was like, this was the same year is 9-11 so 9-11 happens this is maybe in like November of that same year and I'm at his 
grandparents' house, and his grandparents were like, and I don't want to offend anybody, but these like crazy over the top, like born again Christians. And, um, start, I don't know what I said or what she learned about me, but she starts talking about how the devil is living inside of me and all this stuff. And so I'm standing near, um, the kitchen sink and there's like this like little shelving unit thing. And there's this lone razor blade. Now I had never used a razor blade for self-harm before. So I kind of did like this little almost nick. And as she's talking, I'm getting more like agitated and more irritable and more angry. And I basically eventually grab it and run into the bathroom and I slash at my arm, not thinking, oh, it's a razor blade, not a key. So there's just blood. Um, you can see muscle. I mean, it was very deep. So I go to the hospital. I wound up with 20 stitches um, in my arm. And at the time, you know, cell phones weren't like, like everyone had them yet. So I didn't have a cell phone. Um, I'm six hours away from home. You know, my parents kind of know my cell harm history at this point. And I call home from the hospital. And their reaction was, if we ever hear you do something like this again, we will pull you out of school and we will put you in a mental institution. So that kind of set the tone, I feel like, for the rest of my life mm. and how what I tell them and, um, you know, how they look at things. It, and so, I'm sure it contributed to um, fear-based decision-making for on your part to not be found out to not to keep things secret to uh, oh yeah yeah um, oh yeah because, that had been difficult yeah i mean that was probably one of the worst you know traumas um looking back at all of them mm -hmm. um not even so much the that cutting incident like was bad and traumatic i mean i had a lot of stitches but like i think the reaction is what made it even more so more so traumatic because um, it sounds like it's one of those things that they're they're they were saying basically uh, you're you were acting crazy and lacking in willpower and needed to just get it together or else you, you were gonna lose right. your value. Right. So I just made this decision like, well, I'm just not gonna tell them anything. Yeah. I'm just not if this happens again, I'm just not gonna tell them. Why would I it just doesn't make sense. Um for, for me to, you know, risk leaving college and being committed in a sense. Um, I mean, maybe that's what I needed, but to go about it in that way was just not helpful, obviously. Um, so I'm with this guy. We, you know, I find out he's cheating on me. So we break it off. Um, and then, you know, we make the stupid decision to like, still see each other and like have sex, but like, we're not going to be dating. And I hit this point, maybe in like April of my freshman year, like, okay, no, I'm done with that. And at some point still in that same semester, he comes by the dorm. Oh, and at this point I don't have a roommate because when she found out about the cutting incident, she didn't want to be my roommate anymore. 
she didn't want to be the girl known who had a roommate who cut herself. So, so I imagine that that kind of propelled similar feelings to what you felt when your parents said, you know, if this happens again, uh, you're going to you know, go to a mental institution just for the rejection. And yeah. Um, yeah. So I didn't have a roommate and he, I don't know, came by my room, like the window and was like, I don't have a place to stay. Can you just let me in for the night? And I was like, all right. And then I was like, remember, you're just sleeping in the bed with me. We're not doing anything. And um, I literally wake up to him molesting me. And this is, it's interesting how that could be such a big trauma for someone. And for me, for some reason, like, I don't talk about it and like I get all like upset or like I don't know for some reason and maybe it's just something's buried <laughs> but um you know I still recognize it as something that should not have happened you know um so that was freshman year of college um summer between freshman and sophomore year I go home to New Jersey to work um you know whatever and I start talking to my now husband online through a dating website. And um, we met in person that like following October in DC, he was a student um, at Catholic university and he found me through this site because he knew a lot of people in his college came from the Northeast Um because I had listed myself as New Jersey for my profile, because that's where I was currently. So it's kind of funny that he found me because not not only was I not in DC, like at his college, I just happened to be at a college about an hour south. So we start talking, we meet in person, we um, get engaged two years later, and then we get married the October after I graduated college. So in 2005, um, he was two years ahead of me in college. So, um, kind of my whole adult life. Um, it's interesting you bring up the hidden factor because my whole life, my self harm, it didn't ever completely go away. I will say after that cutting incident in college, I never used an instrument in my adult life until my acute reason for going to the ranch, which I'll get to. But my whole adult life, I kind of went back and forth between um, being really good with my anger, um, you know, feeling like I don't need to see anybody. Um, but there was times where I um, did see therapists and I've been on medication for quite a while. Um, you know, some things I've had to try different or if I got pregnant, I'd have to like go off one thing and try something new. Um, but I feel like the self-harm, the punching, the biting, pulling my hair, that's been largely consistent in my whole life. And I think I have a hard time even admitting that because, um, I, you know, I think I convinced myself for a long time, like, oh, well, I'm doing okay. Um, so I'll fast forward to, uh, my reason for going to the ranch and then, I think I'll explain maybe how I learned about trauma and then I may go backwards into some traumas, you know, during my marriage 
really more kid related than anything else. So um, this was in 2018 in July. Well, actually the incident happened in June. Um, uh, Kind of the short version there, there, there is kind of one major trauma that I still am not comfortable, I guess, talking about publicly. Um, So it was related to that. And I, for the first time since that college incident, I self-harmed with a key again. And I was terrified because I thought if I open this box back up in a sense, I'm scared I'm going to keep doing it, you know? And so it was like 11 p.m. at night. And also what made it really terrifying was my husband and I were basically in an argument. He had gone to the kitchen to like get water for either me or himself. And that's when I grabbed my keys and ran to the bathroom. But what I tell people is was what made this so scary. And what I believe is life or death is if he hadn't been in the kitchen, I was ready to grab a knife and stab myself. Wow. That's how full of shame I was this time. It wasn't even so much anger. It was, it was more shame about the conversation, you know, we were having and what was related to it. Mm-hmm. So when I went in the bathroom and I did what I did and I opened the door and I'm just saying, help me, help me. He sees what's happening. And I'm like, I don't know. What do we do? I'm like, start calling people. So, you know, my sister who's a nurse and my best friend, call her, call your parents, call your brother. His brother has a, um, I think it's a master's in psychology. Like I was like, basically call anyone but my parents and help. We need help figuring out, do we go to the psyche yard? Do we, what do we do? And so they all kind of agreed that if I was in this state where I recognized how bad it was, that it probably didn't, I didn't need to go to a psyche yard. Um, I'm not sure if that was the right. How did you, how did you feel? Did you, did when they made that decision or told you that uh did that make you feel one type of way or another did you agree with them well um no i didn't i honestly wish i had just said i think we need to go um Mm -hmm. i think you know we have four children and so i think what winds up happening is um you start thinking about the details you know well if someone has to take me who's going to watch them and that's the kind of stuff that ran through my head but in the immediate after fact when I realized they had kind of made this decision together I remember being a little bit mad really more at my husband than anyone saying like why didn't you just (laughs) notice this was an emergency and take me um and that's not like a harboring you know thing I have um but yeah I do remember thinking like I don't know if that was the right decision and I wish I had just kind of spoken up um so but we kind of immediately acted you know in the days following looking up treatment centers saying okay I think I need to go somewhere and I had only once considered doing inpatient and that was when um in 2011 was kind of a big year for our family in the sense of like medical issues that had come up with different people in the family, like our immediate family. Um, and one of them was in December of that year, my husband had his thyroid removed. I had a baby. I had my third kid that year. 
So not only did I have a baby, but I had two other kids that were young. Um, And my mother-in-law came to help. And I lost my shit, for lack of a better word. I had what I say is an episode, um, which is basically when I lose my crap. And she was... um, I'm not sure if she was really terrified for myself or for her son, my husband, or for our children. But she basically threatened me and Brian and was like, you need to take her to the psych ER or I'm going to call the cops, blah, blah, blah. So we went to the psych ER and I just shut down. I mean, I didn't answer a question. Brian had to do it all for me. Um, I think we brought the youngest with me because I was breastfeeding Mm. or maybe we didn't. I honestly don't remember. But that was the only time I really thought about it. But then again, the whole thing of like, well, I'm breastfeeding a kid and who's going to take care of the other kids. And I'm just going to have to manage this on my own. Mm. And at the time I had no idea about IOPs or um, any of that stuff. So really my whole adult life, it was really just, you know, I might go to therapy once a week and I take medication. That was kind of my extent of my mental health um, treatment. So, um, I checked into the ranch in July. It wasn't like immediately after the incident because family happened to be coming into town. Um, and again, didn't feel like this was so much of an emergency that we needed to like cancel everything. Um, so I went to the ranch. It was July, I think 7th or 8th of 2018. Um, and I was there for about six weeks. Um, and I kind of wrote down just a few notes of like what I learned at the ranch, like what has really stuck out. So the biggest thing was I went to the ranch thinking, oh, I'm going for self-harm. I'm going for anger issues. I've got anxiety. Depression's never really been a huge thing. So I didn't know about trauma. Like I thought trauma was people who had been through war and natural disasters and rape, like I didn't know there was something called the little T. And so that was really powerful to learn that I did. Do you mind me asking uh, you to explain what did you learn about what little T traumas were? For those people listening that don't, that may not have heard before. Yeah. So essentially little T's are things um, like what I went through in my childhood with my dad, um, but they build up over time. And they're the same and sometimes worse as these big T's. Um, so, and I'll give some more examples of some traumas that happened through, um, you know, with my children. But, you know, the incident in college, the stuff growing up, um, even the thing with my mother-in-law, kind of that threatening um, there's so many traumas on a small level, but because they kind of add up over time, they can be just as bad. Um, and one thing that was really helpful that I learned from the people I lived with was there's not like a trauma competition. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And it was really humbling to hear that from people who I lived with, who had been through these big teas that I hadn't um, for them to say to me, like, you're just as worthy of being here. You're just as worthy of receiving this treatment just because you didn't 
you know, um, have these big things that we did. Um, there's, yeah, there's no competition for mental health. There's no, um, competition for trauma. Um, and so that was really meaningful and powerful to understand because when you first get there and you do hear these stories, you, that's, is kind of one of your, at least that was one of my immediate reactions was, well, I haven't done, I haven't had anything as bad as that happen to me or been through that. And so you almost uh, feel like unworthy to speak up because somebody with what feels like more serious trauma is presenting in front of you. You in some way, shape or form feel like you need to either wait your turn or hold your tongue. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's one. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember how that, you know, conversation kind of came up, but that was really from the people I lived with, um, who wanted to kind of make that distinction. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, you know, it's not everyone's journey and story is their own. Um, so it's not, you know, I think I have some like meme, I don't know, saved on my phone where it's like, if someone drowns in, you know, two feet of water, and someone else drowns in 20 feet of water, they still drowned. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. I've never heard that before. That's really, that's really powerful. Yeah, I'll have to send it <laughs> to you if yeah. I can find it. Um, yeah. Yeah, half, half my camera roll is memes, basically. <laughs> I can't relate. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding. You know, I'm, I'm not telling the truth on that one. <laughs> um. So another big thing was learning the difference between shame and guilt. Um, and obviously, Brene Brown is a very uh, popular and well-referenced author at the ranch. Um, so learning the difference between shame and guilt. So hopefully I get it straight. Shame is um, thinking you are bad as a person. Mm -hmm. And guilt is that you've done something bad. And knowing that story or knowing that difference is a huge thing because guilt to me is a feeling or an emotion and it can prompt you to act differently. Um, but shame is saying that you're, you know, you're bad as a person. And I mm -hmm. think that's what I, I realized at the ranch that that's a lot of what I felt. I felt this shame that, because of what I did, whether it was my anger with my kids or my husband, um, the self-harm, that that made me a bad person. And that's a huge distinction. Um, I'm pretty sure I initially read that in The Gift of Imperfection um, from Brene Brown. Um, so that's a, that's a big thing. Um, Touching back on the relationships with the women I, I lived with, that was a huge, huge part of the recovery. When I first got to the ranch, I remember thinking, I am not going to be friends with these people. <laughs> I am going to go and do my work and I'm not going to be friends because, and my sister I think is watching. So um, she'll love to hear this. I don't know that I've ever told her. So my hey, sister, sister, hey. <laughs> So my sister is in recovery. Um, she went uh, 
for drugs and alcohol. I believe she is sober for, I want to say three years now. Um, Yeah. So I remember thinking um, when she got home, now she's in New Jersey, so it's not like I see her often, but, you know, we're best friends and we talk all the time. And I remember thinking, oh, so all she did was change her addiction to this recovery addiction. She's now addicted to recovery because all she did was talk about recovery and she would, you know, be going to meetings all the time. And like, that's literally, I felt like all she did. And, you know, she had all these new friends now and all this stuff. And I just remember thinking it was like over the top and crazy. And that's not going to be me. I'm just going to keep to myself and do my work. Well, let's just say that is just not possible. When you live with, you know, 17 other women or however many it was at the time. um, And you're together, um, you know, from, I don't know, 645 in the morning for breakfast till essentially you go to bed you don't have a choice but to get to know these people and it winds up being a huge, huge part of the recovery. Um, So I, part of the letter I wrote them when I left was touching on that. Um, You know, how important that aspect of, um, you know, living with and doing these things together and not just, um, like in a primary group. So like I would be in a primary group four days a week for a few hours every morning. And obviously you got to know the people's story in your primary group. And that's important. Um, doing activities together was important, but even just sitting around at the dinner table or um, doing puzzles together, that kind of stuff that just really builds bonds um, mm-hmm. that are kind of there forever. Um Another thing that, so when I got home from the ranch, it was so interesting talking to my sister because we like to say there's like a language of recovery. Um, I call it, I call it ranch speak or ranch talk. There's certain things that when I talk to people sometimes come out of me and I'm like, oh, sorry, that's ranch talk. You may not know what I'm really even saying, but um, I've heard some people call it, I've heard some people call it ranchy. Um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's got lots of different terms, but it's a real thing for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, there's just certain phrases that you hear over and over, but they're very, um, impactful. And Mm -hmm. I, um, so I, I lost my train of thought. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So you were talking about ranch talk and explaining that and how you and your sister, you know, it's it's been really great that we've been able to have these conversations and have kind of, Oh, on the same, on the same, you know, wavelength. And another thing we have said is that we wish everyone could go to recovery because whether you have an addiction or not, or mental health issues or not, everybody can benefit from what we learn um, while we're there. And, you know, it's just, yeah. So I wish, you know, I almost wish we say like, we wish everybody because it becomes like a whole way, new way of thinking about mm-hmm. life and looking at your life. And that doesn't mean like my personality has changed. It's not like I went to the ranch and now I'm some like recovery robot. Like I'm still the same person I was, but there's always a way to be a better version of yourself 
especially in recovery and in line with recovery and what you're trying to achieve. And that can look different for people depending on what they went to the ranch or any treatment, what they went for. Um, I, if, if you don't mind, I, I just kind of wanted to tie something in here and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think I, this is a great place to draw a parallel from when you were talking about in your younger years when your parents had sent you to do individual therapy and they just wanted to talk, your, the therapist just wanted to talk about, um, you know, past stuff, you know, whatever, just do talk therapy about what had happened and, and the past and you didn't necessarily feel that it was the most effective. Um, I would uh, s say that at the ranch, did you notice um, that in a combination of um, identify and walking, identifying and walking through that plus learning about uh, coping techniques and co uh, healthy coping mechanisms um, for uh, when you are experiencing real life in the moment, those things being dealt with together at the same time coupled is what was able to bring you true healing because almost one without the other doesn't acknowledge um, you know, you've got this root cause and issue, right? If you don't deal with that, you're always going to have these outbursting behaviors, but at the same time you deal with this root cause that you have these behaviors and things that are almost a natural response at this point and involuntary. So you have to, you have to juggle them and approach them both simultaneously. And I hear a lot of people talk about how that, you know, being able to do that when you're away from home in a residential environment is what really made the difference. Would you say that was your experience as well? Yeah. So the fact that at the ranch, um, you know, we would meet in these primary groups and then meet with our therapist once a week. Um, but they would give us stuff to do. Like you didn't mm -hmm. have phones, you didn't have TV. So when we didn't have scheduled things, we had practical things we had to do to address our trauma. Um, and then we also had, you know, DBT, um, mm -hmm. which I probably won't, been able to pronounce the first word of what it stands for dialect dialectical <laughs> you got it dialectical behavior dialectical therapy. behavior therapy so mm -hmm. that to me um compared to c cbt or c whatever it yep. is cognitive um, behavioral yes so i feel like dbt is just more practical um it is mm -hmm. more in depth um and obviously i was there six weeks so i couldn't get through all of it um but yeah, that is a huge, and that is honestly something that I need to look for. Um, currently, some things have come up that I'm realizing I need to kind of maybe go to a DVD class or something because we didn't, you know, get to finish. And I've kind of been, you know, I kept up with it a little bit once I got home, but not enough um, where I kind of learned all the skills. But yeah. Given like what DVD, we've gone through in Nashville recently with the tornado and stuff going on in, in our country at the moment um i could say we could we could all use some dbt skills uh for sure yeah um, but, but that's kind of that was one of my main goals for going um to the ranch was i knew i knew my self-harm was right a bad coping mechanism um i knew my anger was still out of control at times um I think I convinced myself it had gotten better and maybe it had, but it still was just not, I didn't want to turn into my dad. Essentially. I didn't want my children to grow up being scared of me. 
Um, I wanted them to be able to approach me and, and not feel like they're walking in eggshells. And so I guess that kind of brings me to after the ranch, um, some things that I've done and have learned, um, in my recovery. So I'm at, you know, not quite two years and I will say for a little bit after I got home from the ranch, I felt like I was kind of floating in a sense is the way I describe it because um, my discharge was essentially, you know, finding a new therapist. Cause at the time I didn't have one. Um, my medication was stable. Like they didn't change at the ranch. Um, I personally wanted to find a new psychiatrist, but really my discharge plan was just to find a new therapist to try to go to some meetings because at the ranch, you get a lot of exposure to different 12 steps. I had no idea 12 step meetings could also be, for in a sense, mental health or trauma. I thought it was all addiction or whatever. Um, so ACA or adult children of alcoholics or dysfunctional family was the one that really made the most sense to me. Um, so they said, you know, keep up with doing that. And of course, I'm like, well, I'll do what I can. I still have four kids when I get home that I have to take care of. But um, I also... So when I went to the ranch, my youngest was four. He was had just turned four. He was also, um, <coughs> sorry, he was also just kind of accepted into this new program at the school for special needs. So he was going to be in school essentially full time. And then my other three kids are older and they're in school full time. So I'm going to have all this free time on my hands. Um so it was a matter of figuring out what am I going to do with my time? How much of it is going to be devoted to recovery and self-care and that kind of thing. Um, and so in the beginning, I tried to like stick to this quote schedule and I tried to be really regimented. And because I do thrive on a schedule, like the ranch was perfect for that in that regard for me. Um, you know, I thrive, I'm very, what I say, like academic. I love reading. I loved Sorry, I love that some of the, you know, we had to do a lot of writing, a lot of reading, like that is, that fits my personality. So I tried to like replicate the schedule and it just, I don't know. I just felt like for so long I was just floating, not really knowing what to do in my recovery. At the time there was really no alumni, nothing for alumni set up. Um, so... I, but I also learned that, so I, oh, I changed therapist. I'm on my third one now since I've been home. The first one I largely changed for insurance reasons. Um, the second one just, you know, seemed like a really good fit. She took my insurance. She was trained in trauma and EMDR and it, she wound up not being a good fit. Honestly, my third one, I may have to switch from only really for scheduling. Her scheduling is just kind of limited and it's becoming harder and harder to get appointments. Like I haven't honestly been there since December. Um, and so I'm, I'm noticing that I'm falling back a little bit into this pattern of like thinking I'm okay and I'm okay by myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got my medication and I'm stable, but. Um, you know, some things have come up recently, which is why, you know, I reached out to Jamie, um, 
and said, hey, I think I need something like DBT classes or even an IOP. And um, of course, everything's kind of been put on hold because the tornado has affected my son's school schedule. Mm. And then um, my husband just lost his job. So his temporary job, we're hoping, you know, temporary, but it's like a night shift. So I'm just not going to have a choice for now, but yeah. you know, I don't want to, I don't want to forget about it. Let's say. So sure. some other things I kind of learned. Um, <clears throat> so I've kind of learned overall with my recovery that it's okay to change. Um, and I don't know if this is unique to mental health recovery or if this is for everybody, but it's okay to change course or to um, reevaluate what you're doing, if it's working or not. Um, I think you need to have some consistency in either staying connected or, you know, reading. In my case, I love reading. Um, but if you don't, you know, maybe there's some podcasts or videos. Uh, <coughs> sorry, I don't know what is happening. Um, <laughs> I was going to make a coughing joke, but it's so inappropriate. I apologize. That's why I smiled just then. <laughs> We got to stay lighthearted during these times, you know? Yes. (laughs) Um, Another major thing. So basically it's okay if your recovery changes. It's okay if, you know, it's what I always tell people about the ranch. Me going to the ranch was not a fix. It was not a cure. It was not, okay, I went to the ranch for six weeks and now I'm fixed. If anything, that was the start. That was the beginning of my recovery and my journey. Um, So, um, yeah, so that, that can change. Um, another thing I think is awareness, um, and self-care are probably the two things that have stayed somewhat consistent for me. Um, there's also a lot of opinions on self-care in terms of like what you should be doing. And I did fall into that trap a little bit where I was constantly worried, am I doing enough self-care? Am I doing the right self-care? And that has also gotten better. Um, I've just kind of allowed myself to do it as I want to do it. And so for me, if self-care just means sitting by myself and reading, you know, a stupid like fiction novel, then that's what I'm going to do. If self-care means taking a bath, um, that's what I'm going to do. For some people, self-care might be more um, fun or... (laughs) outdoor or sporadic but that doesn't mean you have to do that um one of the things i did as an assignment for the ranch was listing some things i could try new when i got home and that was good and bad it was good because yes there's some things that could bring me joy that i've never thought of but i think it also put a little bit too much pressure on me like oh i'm not doing enough Mm -hmm. um so it's good to spend time alone, but again, you just don't want to isolate. Mm. Um, apologizing has been a big thing. Um, like I said, my children have been very resilient through this whole thing um, while I was gone. Um, but I make sure if I you know, have an episode and I really lose it with them, that I apologize to them. Um, you know, from the oldest to the youngest. Um, and I'll say there's a difference between me being right as a parent and correcting you, but me like really losing, you know, my shit on you 
and being really angry, that's mm-hmm. not okay. And I, you know, have reiterated to them that that's what I'm working on and that's what I'm trying to be better at. Um, because ultimately I have one daughter and three boys and ultimately I don't, and she's my oldest, she's 13. And ultimately I don't want her to become like me and to have to go to the ranch in the future. As much as I love the ranch and as much as it made a world of difference, I don't want to kind of contribute, you know, down the line. Um, I also have to remind myself or I'll drive myself crazy that she is her own unique individual, her own, you know, human being. Um, And I can't directly, even as her parent, you know, affect or change what's going to happen. It's not like I'm a bad mom because she X, Y, Z. And then being able to ask for help is a big thing. Um, So with this recent, uh, my husband losing his job, I had my first panic attack in probably, I don't know, months and months. I felt like I was having a heart attack and I literally texted him because he'd already gone to bed. And I just said, I think I just need you to hold me. And he just said, okay. And he, you know, said, you know, do your breathing. And eventually it, you know, went away. Um, But that can be a really, really big step for people to ask, just ask for that help, whether it's Mm -hmm. in the immediate, like I'm immediately right now going through something or I need help with, you know, something larger or something down the road or whatever. Um, Two other things, and this is again, my ranch talk, but I repeat them a lot. Be clear about your needs, ask for what you need. Um, And that I think can also mean saying no. Um, You know, I'm one of these people that wants to help and wants to do what I can, whether it's with my kid's school, with my church. Um, But sometimes you have to put yourself first and, you know, the world as unique and as great as we are, the world is not going to fall apart if we say no to X, Y, Z, you know what I mean? Um, And then the last thing is to just give yourself grace. Um, That's probably one of my favorite sayings that I learned at the ranch that I say to people a lot. Um, You know, to just be gentle with yourself, give yourself that grace that we are on a lifetime process and that can be daunting i think to think about that like oh i'm gonna have to deal with this for the rest of my life but that's for everyone whether someone has a mental health issue an addiction or not everyone's gonna have something some character defect that they're they have to deal with the rest of their life um so you need to recognize when you're being too hard on yourself and just give yourself that grace and know that, you know, you're doing the best you can, I think. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I'm sure I forgot something I wanted to say, but I think that's kind of, kind of the gist yeah. of everything. <laughs> no, that was, that was so wonderful. And I felt like you, from my end of hearing things, you seemed very thorough. Um, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to go back and touch on um, you mentioned how many people, whether it's family members or the person going into treatment um, feel like, or hope that going to treatment is a fix and that you're going to come away um, being better. And it's, you know, like you're repaired. So there you go. And um 
you know, as many of us figure out when we go to treatment, I went to treatment when I you know, got uh, at the beginning of my journey as well. You know, you find out it's a little bit different. You know, you're laying a foundation that you then go have to do all the work when you leave. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect. And it doesn't mean that everything's better when you go home. But it does mean that we're equipped with the toolbox to manage better. And to, like you said, ask for help when we're in a situation where we need help and identify boundaries um, you know, and, and develop clear communication. And, and I, you know, just to pinpoint where I can see that working in your life so much is that you are showing up to stay connected in our alumni events, connecting with Jamie, um, and you're also asking for help. You're identifying where you need help and you're asking for it when you need it. Um, you know, when we look at somebody successful in recovery from mental health, addiction, whatever you want to name it, it doesn't look like somebody who never has problems anymore. You know, it looks like somebody who continues to fight, continues to put one foot in front of the other, um, to do the next right thing, use their resources, never give up and, um, ask for help when they need it because life happens and we do need we need a recharge we need a new therapist like you said you know that that happens sometimes and um i just have to to commend you on your persistency and saying you know i'm not just going to give up on individual therapy because this one didn't work out um you know there are so many different types of therapists that practice like you said with you know some insurance non-insurance um specialize in one thing not the other there's personality differences because my goodness they're human just like us you know yeah. and um so i don't know i just kind of wanted to touch on those because i feel like they're very important they're also shared experiences that other people have already had or somebody listening um maybe about to have you know, in their, in their early recovery journey from something. So, um, yeah, I think it's real important. Yeah. Def I mean, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, thank you. I cannot thank you enough for sharing <laughs> your story. One last thing that I wanted to mention is that, and I know, you know, for our pre-show talk last night when we were going over everything, um, we talked about how, um, in my in my opinion special it is that you were willing to come share your story on this public platform on Facebook uh, because you know this is this is my perspective in my opinion uh, but I feel like so many people struggling with things other than drug and alcohol addiction um, are get pushed out of uh, get um, get pushed into isolation because uh, in so many instances it's um looked at so differently and 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 with a different type of shame and with a lot of speaking for myself being in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction um mine forced all of my stuff into the spotlight so everybody who knows me knew my everything that was going on and what have you, you know, it was no secret and it's not a secret anymore. Um, I don't know that I feel like that's the same for people that are, that are struggling or have struggled and are now recovering from eating disorders, mental health um, issues, trauma, sex addiction. And um, so it is very special to me that you were willing to share your story because, um, you know, it's, you know, 
you share it so well talking about your you know trigger warnings and things like that um you know it's it's a whole different type of storytelling experience when you jump into this and um so I thank you so much. You're, you're the first person um, with a specifically mental health trauma journey uh, that we've talked to on um, the Facebook Live series. And um, I'm really glad to have your story here as a resource. So yes, thank well, you like for that. Thank you for yeah, thinking to ask me. And um, yeah, I just, I didn't know that mental health um, could be in a sense considered you know recovery because again you just think about drug and alcohol um mm -hmm. and so um my sister has also reiterated that you know like it counts just as much for you as it does for me kind of thing um so i'm really it sure does because it's it's maintenance you know it's not something that goes away and you still have to continue doing things just like i do to maintain your health and recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And what's amazing, you know, when I, the, the house I lived in was considered quote, the trauma house, but because of the dual diagnosis that the ranch would treat, we had plenty of people who had drug and alcohol. And um, so it was really interesting because we had plenty of similarities, even though I might not have turned to alcohol and drugs, you know, mm -hmm. I had these massive anger issues, which I, in a sense, learned during my PCP time, PHP, <laughs> my PHP time at the ranch, um, that that was almost my addiction. Yeah. You know, you think about everything that releases when you have this major anger. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of learned that was, in a sense, my addiction and that the self-harm was my unhealthy coping mechanism. And so um, it was really helpful to see all the parallels and to see uh, the similarities with the with the women that I lived with who had those kind of addictions. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> I, whenever I say it's awesome about stuff like that, it's I, I feel like I have to clarify, right? <laughs> like, uh, in, in recovery, we look at things like that. And we say, that's awesome. You found healing. You found, you know, you were able to identify similarities and things like that. Right. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, it's not something that I think is cool that anybody has to suffer with that stuff. But yeah, um, I think that we are all special that find our way through any form of recovery because, um, my gosh, we the floodgates open for us to have access to, like I said, our toolbox, our toolkit um, for healthy coping that um, for most normies out there, um, you know, that never have anything lead them to a therapeutic environment. Um, you know, they they're left to the whole pull, you know, pull your boot. What is it? Pull it up, pull, pull up your bootstraps and just do it. <laughs> you know, willpower. And that's, that's a mentality I basically grew up with was you just mm -hmm. do it and get through it and don't complain and don't, you know, talk about your feelings and all that stuff. And yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, listen, we, I can't believe we have, we've gone almost four minutes over the hour <laughs> and it doesn't feel like it to me. Um, so, um, but I want to be, uh, respectful of everybody's time. So we'll wrap it up. And um, thanks again for sharing today and being present and, and, 
and being vulnerable. Uh, you know, as we talked about, Brene Brown loves to talk about vulnerability and how it's synonymous with um, healing and mental health and emotional health. And um, so um, I thank you for that. And I hope that you've gotten something out of this hour and being able to share and you know, release your story as well. Yes. Well, again, thank you for having me. Absolutely. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 877-351-7504 or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself.